for status, I am Malihe Razazan. In recent decades, the six members of Gulf Cooperation Council, or GCC, which includes the Gulf Arab monarchies of Qatar, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Oman, and Bahrain, have lured millions of mostly low-skilled and semi-skilled workers from South and Southeast Asia and Africa. For the past few months, the migrant workers in these monarchies have been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and its economic impact. To understand the plight of these millions of migrant workers and the history of labor migration in this region, Shahram Aghamir spoke with Andrea Wright, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and the program in Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at William and Mary. Professor Wright's current projects explore migration from India to the oil fields of the Arabic-speaking Gulf and the connections between energy, governance, and labor. Professor Wright began by giving an overview and breakdown of the number of migrant workers in Persian Gulf monarchies. There's not clear data on that. The Indian government captures partial data, Indians who emigrate abroad that need clearance from the Indian government. So if an Indian man hasn't passed 10th grade and wants to emigrate to work in the Gulf, um, he needs permission from the Indian government to do so. So they have some data on how many go. And so we can see it's somewhere between 800,000 to a little over a million a year are traveling to the GCC. And there are some numbers, but most of them are quite old. Yeah, BBC, for instance, had a count of 23 million people. Because of the way the labor system works in the Gulf, the governments of the GCC Council largely like contract out managing labor to, to companies and to citizens. And so companies act as sponsors for visas and largely um, are in charge of their workforce. So while governments will often restrict the number, like say an oil company wants to hire a thousand workers, the government might say you can only hire certain percentages of people from different countries. They don't actually collect those numbers themselves in general because they're assuming corporations will take care of that work or um, citizens in the case of smaller companies. But there is this huge discrepancy. I mean, I would say it ranges for total population, non-nationals, probably average about 80% of all the GCC countries. But when you talk about like the workforce, it's also... 80%, but like in Qatar, it's 92.5%, I think, is the estimate of foreign workers. So it's just a very slippery number because no states are actually collecting this data and putting it together based on estimates as well as trying to ascertain the few numbers that states do collect. So in 2010, there was a study that had some estimates of what like percentage uh, foreign workers composed of the Gulf. So it's like in Bahrain, there's 75%. Kuwait, it was about 80%. Oman was 68 to 70%. Saudi Arabia is 50%, but Saudi Arabia has a much larger population. And as well as there's a lot of work put into training Saudis for certain jobs. As, and then about 85% of the population in the United Arab Emirates are foreigners. And then we know that in the United Arab Emirates, in Dubai, for example, Indians are the largest expatriate community, is the assumption. And I, I think that's pretty well established, but that differs slightly depending on the country. Generally, which sectors of the economy seems to be attracting these migrant workers? 
50 to 60% of the workers are what are categorized as unskilled or semi-skilled workers. So, you know, often this is things that one doesn't need a technical or high school degree for, either occupations that one could learn on the job or that often involve just manual labor. There's about 10% of foreigners in the Gulf are skilled professionals. 18% are service workers. People who work in trade are um, 3%. And then there's another 10% that, that fall into various smaller categories. So wow. unskilled and semi-skilled is somewhere between 55 and 60% of the population. So unskilled workers are manual laborers and semi-skilled workers are people who work as pipe fitters or scaffold builders or maybe masons or welders or drivers. Those types of positions, people who are usually um, come from rural, very poor areas of India, are often would fit within that category. And the workers are generally employed in the private sector. And, and which sectors would you say they're mostly engaged in? My research largely focuses on the oil industry. The one thing about oil projects is that they require large amounts of labor that's often temporary in basis. And so over the course of the 20th century, we see oil companies and their subsidiaries hiring increasingly large numbers of foreigners for those positions because they were unable to fire nationals in those jobs and they had a high rates of redundancy. They also had trouble politically controlling nationals. Clearly, petroleum industry in general is one of the main employers. I would imagine these are mostly construction-related projects for the petroleum industry. Yes, building the infrastructure for the industry. There's also many subsidiary industries related to oil productions. Everything from like glass chains that are used are often produced in smaller factories in the Gulf. In addition to construction, there are domestic workers. Yes, there's domestic workers. And then and those numbers are even harder to get specific numbers on. In part, people from South Asia who go to work as domestic workers often go irregularly or undocumented. But then there's also just because families directly sponsor workers, there's little government oversight regarding domestic workers. In places like Dubai, there's um, a lot of construction, real estate development, and there's lots of buildings being built. There's larger numbers of workers as well. United Arab Emirates and Qataris seem to be leading that line of work for the mm -hmm. time being. Andrea, what are the countries that most of these migrant workers come from? In the Gulf, there's very strong racialized labor hierarchies. The majority of unskilled workers are from South Asia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, or India. Semi-skilled would be, again, those countries of South Asia as well as the Philippines. And then as you get into more skilled jobs, increasingly, you might see people from other parts of the Arabic-speaking world in those positions. And at the upper echelons, often in oil and gas projects are usually run by Americans or Europeans, although there are some people from the Middle East who also run some projects. It seems like there are quite a few African migrant workers mm -hmm. in, in GCC countries as well. Uh, yes. But they seem to be, their number seems to be lower than the ones from Asia in general. Well, so again, the knowledge about these labor statistics are so fragmented. And my work is largely in oil and gas. Oil and gas largely hires people from South Asia or the Philippines, largely because of um, histories of British colonialism and American imperialism in those areas, as well as just histories of they've been hiring people from South Asia since 1908 when oil was discovered in Persia. So I think in part it's because of these patterns of an hiring 
that have happened. I find in um, service industry, there's larger numbers of people from Africa. There's also a number of um, Ethiopian women who work is in the domestic sector. Migrant workers account for the majority of COVID-19 infections and deaths in, mm-hmm. in the Persian Gulf monarchies. One of the first pandemic-related photographs in the region featured a South Asian employee of the Saudi oil company Aramco forced to dress up as a life-sized sanitizer dispenser. Very awkward photo and humiliating. The image went viral and was criticized on Twitter as being racist. Living in often unsanitary conditions of tightly packed labor camps and Spartan dormitories, if you like, has been cited as one of the main reasons for the um, spread of COVID-19 among the migrant workers. What can you tell us about these living conditions? So largely, in my experience, workers live in almost like barracks. And actually, they're largely built by companies that also build refugee camps, as well as some hospital things in the United States. But they often live 6 to 12 to a room. I, On average, I find most people live 8 to a room, and it's just bunk beds, four bunk beds. So it's quite small. It's It would be impossible to socially distance. And then because they have toilet and showering facilities with others who are also closely packed together and then also eat meals, um, community often in relatively small spaces, the assumption would be that um, any social distancing would be impossible in a camp. Is it fair to say that a lot of these camps have unsanitary conditions? It's largely dependent upon who's running the camp. But Amnesty International, for example, says that no one should ever have to live in conditions such as these. And that's their interpretation of the camps in general in the Gulf. Given the pandemic, how is the access to medical resources for the migrant workers? I know you are in conversation with some of these migrant workers. My information off of phone conversations or chat conversations with workers, because I'm you know, based in the United States right now, and it's really hard to get a complete picture of what's happening. So, for example, I know the United Arab Emirates has said it's providing free health care to all workers. What I have found in my conversations is that it's largely dependent upon uh, workers and employer on how they access health care. So there was a incident recently where a group of men were sick with coronavirus and they were being kept in just a couple of the rooms of a camp. But then they were still like sharing toilet facilities and they were not bringing in a doctor to see them. I spoke with a Filipina domestic worker who told me that she had gone to the hospital because she was very sick. And she said the hospital simply called the family that she worked for and sent her home. No, this was in the um, UAE. So while access is supposed to be free, it seems as though all workers aren't able to access that. And especially for many of the men who are working as laborers in the Gulf, they often are um, don't have a lot of formal education and don't have a lot of experience accessing state institutions. Often they live far from city centers or hospitals. And navigating that without the help of an employer is can be quite challenging or without the help of an outside organization. Andrea, you have been in conversation, as I mentioned, with these migrant workers when they were in a similar predicament during the 2008 economic crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plight of these workers is not only a consequence of the economic downturn, but of their temporary status under the GCC's migration system. Mm -hmm. The kafala, or sponsorship system, in these countries, it privatizes labor management 
by tying every migrant worker to an employer with near complete control over their legal residency. Can you tell us how this model works? So in the contemporary moment, it means that often very practically for a worker, when they arrive, their employer will take their passport um, and hold it for them. And employees are unable to switch jobs. In addition, workers are often completely dependent upon their employers for their food and housing. An employer will pay the camp to house its workers as well as to feed the workers. And so what this means is that the experiences of a migrant are largely contingent based on the quality of their employer. And and that really increases the precarity of workers. So after the recession of 2008 and 9, some of the employers fled the country going to debtor's prison. And Workers were stuck in camps and they had no access to water, no access to electricity, no food. And they were largely dependent upon employed workers in neighboring camps to share their food and water with them just to survive. There was large numbers of workers after the recession in 2008 and 9. But always I hear reports of workers whose employer has abandoned them and who are living in buses or are squatting somewhere trying to figure out a way to return to their home countries. So it puts workers in a very precarious position. Based on the writings that I have been following, not only does kafala increase the risk of unpaid wages and appalling working conditions, but it also Mm -hmm. absolves these GCC states of their responsibility vis-a-vis the migrant workers. There's no social contract between these, these workers and the host countries. That is largely exactly right. All the countries do have labor laws and they do have like courts in which workers are able, for example, to sue their or families could sue an employer if they were not given, like say someone was injured or died on a work site. There are ways in which workers or their families can make claims on their employers. But in general, most of the management of workers is contracted to the companies or individuals that hire those workers, either the field sponsor or a company. Kefala seems to have started as an organic way of using foreign labor in these countries, but the power relations have developed into a system for extraction of surplus value that is created by the migrant workers from Global South in a segregated society. Can you talk about the racism in the GCC countries and its interplay with the issue of class? Often, many anthropologists have talked about the kafala system and discussed it as almost a continuation of pre-oil relationships, like slave-slave owner relationships. In my research with the kafala, based on archival work of labor movements in the Gulf, one of the things that I find is that the British, who were protectorates of the region and had like a lot of political control, worked very hard to restructure labor laws that evacuated politics from the oil fields. And as we see increasing relationship between oil and security, we see increasing desires to remove protests or worker action from the oil fields. And so one of the ways in which, when in the 1960s, there was waves of strikes by Gulf Arab Workers were working as like unskilled laborers in the oil industry, and the British worked very hard at restructuring those labor laws. So we see uh, a lot of work done by both the British administrators as well as oil company officials to rewrite labor laws that really encourage the hiring of workers from places like South Asia, who they saw as being more sympathetic to um, British 
policies and British motives, I think because of the history of British colonialism in India. And this was in 1960s? In the 1960s in particular, although it begins with in the 1940s with strikes that were um, threatening to nationalize the oil industry in Iran. We see the beginnings of this process. When we're talking about the kafala system, what I want to really reinforce is that it's part of a global system that is not necessarily exceptional to the Gulf, but rather created through a process of exchange, included in influenced by things like oil companies and as oil companies and imperial powers restructure governance in specific places. So what it means today is that we see a labor hierarchy in which Gulf Arabs are at the top, and then there's perhaps people from the United States and Europe and some countries of the Arab world next, and then increasingly it's like a ladder with South Asians at the bottom and some Filipinos, especially those in the domestic sector. And African migrants. Yes. Do you see an interplay of class and race in these dynamics? Oh, certainly. Africans, South Asians, and Filipinos, especially those who work in the um, domestic sector, are at the bottom. And then Gulf Arabs are at the top, with white Europeans and Americans also often falling quite higher in the hierarchy. How is this kafala system different from other systems impacting migrant labor from global south? in more affluent countries where we also read horror stories about slavery-like labor conditions? Well, I think that there's many similarities as you gesture towards the lack of choices workers have, the precarity under which they live, and the fact that often it's people who are migrating who are extremely poor and have very limited options for feeding their families who are migrating. And perhaps some of the specificities would be the role of the oil industry, I think, in the system, as well as the kafala system. I almost think of it as like, it's like subcontracting. Everyone's a contractor. Everyone is almost like an Uber driver with very limited rights and no real recourse to larger systems of critically interrogating how their working conditions are. They don't have a lot of ways to improve their working conditions. And would you also say that there is a degree of segregation in terms of living quarters, in terms of access mm-hmm. to facilities. There's this segregation that's very rigidly reinforced. And here again, I think the role of the oil industry in this in imperialism is quite powerful. Because oil is thought of as being a security issue, this gives reasons to both control access to sites where either workers would live or work, and it then can restrict people's movements. It also, because of the ways in which the cities of the Gulf are made, it often means that workers live very far from other members of the society and because there's so many migrants in comparison to the numbers of nationals living in those countries. Migrants are the vast majority of the population. Is it fair to say that this degree of segregation is somewhat different from what you see, for instance, in the United States? It's a different degree of segregation in the sense that, I mean, they're always considered as guest workers and temporary workers. They always consider them as going back to their countries. Exactly. Exactly. They're never integrated into the society as such. They're not integrated into the society, and there's no avenues for citizenship. Citizenship in the um, Gulf states are passed through the male line, and so, although largely passed through the um, father's line. There's a few exceptions to that. But workers can never become citizens. Or even get permanent residency of some sort. They do. If you're well off enough, like there's Indians who spent their whole lives living there, and often they own multiple companies, like co-own multiple companies, usually with the Gulf Arab 
owns 51% and then they own 49%. But there's people who were born there and have lived their whole lives in the Gulf states. They never anticipate that they will become, like that they could become a citizen or be able to access the rights of a citizen. Yes, that's where the issue of class and affluence comes. You mentioned a very interesting point about the legacy of imperialism in the region. The British in particular, I think you were mentioning. This system that is in place, Kefala, and also uh, the entire structure of uh, employment and work of migrant workers in these countries, how much of it is actually indigenous versus a legacy of, of an imperialist rule in these countries? I see a lot of the a lot of the system to stem from British imperialism in the colonialism. Those countries. Um, yes. In colonialism, the setting up of protectorates. For example, in the 1960s, we see Gulf Arabs working for the government, both wanting to legitimate trade unions, to recognize trade unions, to allow for people to join trade unions, regardless of their nationalities. And we also see uh, those same Gulf Arab government officials arguing for joining things like the International Labor Organization. In response, British colonial administrators, as well as oil company officials, argued vehemently against it and insisted often that it would like destroy the national security of those countries and that it would imperil the rules, the governments there. Instead, rewrote laws that really restricted workers' abilities to organize, to agitate for better working conditions, and largely evacuated politics from the oil fields in order to protect oil company property. The Saudi Arabian workers, they had a militant history in the 1960s, and so it was Bahrain for that matter, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and as well as the United Arab Emirates. Yes. Well, in um, Abu Dhabi, it was before the Emirates were formed, but in Abu Dhabi, there were strikes in 63 and 68. In Qatar in 68, Qataris went on strike multiple times. And often, in that case, it was against like Shell Oil Company. And there was a lot of work done to repress them. Uh, Robert Vitalis' book, America's Kingdom, is an excellent description of the work that American oil companies working with the Saudi government did to um, violently repress worker action. I mean, I think that this legacy was uh, is really powerful. I really see that, especially outside of Saudi Arabia, but in like British-controlled oil projects, many of which were run by British Petroleum, which the British government at the time had a controlling interest in. With the threats and the strikes around in Iran around um, nationalization, there are just increasingly concerns about worker strikes in maintaining the national security, which becomes increasingly important through maintaining oil supplies, as well as protecting the property of oil companies or in other British property. What the companies do in response is they both work very hard to restructure labor laws to um, reduce workers' abilities to strike, and then they also do things like begin to segregate workers increasingly along national lines. So by segregating workers along national lines, which is something that American oil companies had been much more rigorous about, it prevents workers from forming solidarities. So in the 30s and 40s, even in the early 50s, we see lots of strikes but that are both Gulf Arabs, Arabic speakers, Farsi speakers, and Hindi speakers all working together to try to change their working conditions. And we see over the course of the 20th century workers, as they become both spatially segregated based on their nationality, as well as given different benefits based on their nationality, it's a very effective management strategy to discourage workers from forming solidarities with each other and instead 
pitting workers against each other. So what we have today as the structure in this kafala system and what is in place governing labor-capital relations is the legacy of British colonialism in the region. Anthropologists such as Andrew Gardner or Longva, in their research, they argue that the kafala system is a formalization of the slave-slave-owner relations that existed before the discovery of oil in the region. I certainly would not want to insist that everything is imposed from outside, but I think that there's ways in which systems, capitalism takes non-capitalist relations and builds upon it to create more capital. And so I think that what we see is that process playing out in the Gulf. And so, so it's, you know, both traditions, practices that existed pre-oil in conjunction with both the political and economic shifts that happened with the discovery of oil, as well as British colonialism in the region, all work together to allow for this to happen. As a result of this COVID-19 pandemic, the sectors that have shut down seem to be mainly retail and hospitality, where the higher income mm-hmm. affluent class have to interact with lower income migrants. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, like retail and hospitality, these sections are shut down where lower-income workers are only a risk to one another, there are not as many shutdowns. The workers are locked down and quarantined in their camps, as you mentioned. They're bossed to work sites. One can argue that the segregation system that is institutionalized in the Persian Gulf monarchies and predates COVID-19 has made it easy to implement pandemic-related social distancing between the natives or citizens, if they call them, and the migrant workers. Well, I, I mean, I would say it's not just citizens, but also just the middle and upper class foreigners who live there are also able to socially distance from the poor. And largely the the workers, the poor uh, laborers are um, stuck in camps. Some projects continue. A lot of oil and gas projects are completely stopped until the end of the year, but the workers are still in the Gulf, basically waiting to be repatriated. Their home countries are being very slow with it in general, because they're also dealing with their own uh, lockdowns and infections. And because, again, we're talking about the poorest people from, for example, India, who are stuck in the Gulf is the poorest workers as well. So there's some variation in who's continuing to work. But I would say the biggest difference is there's definitely a a divide between citizens and non-citizens. But regarding who is able to quarantine, I would say is largely class-based, with the poor being unable to because of their living and working conditions and their lack of ability to return to their home countries are unable to quarantine. And the system of segregation has created the de facto social distancing between these two groups. Definitely. Instead of questioning the existing model for migrant workers, some of the critiques of the kafala system have only focused on excesses and abuses seen in the system. The unspoken underlying premise being that these migrant workers do not have a better option in their countries of origin. Hence, it becomes normalized that a worker is receiving a monthly wage of, let's say, 200 to $300 a month in some of the most affluent societies in the world, with no hope of living regularly with their spouses and children or of accessing public facilities like the rest of the residents. This status quo becomes acceptable as long as the workers are paid their abysmal wages and do not die at job sites. And as long as that doesn't happen, all is fine. Do you see that a problem in the way we approach this issue of social justice? Certainly. But I think 
one of the things that we see in the Gulf, but we see also in the United States is that those who are poor and those who are have experienced like historic and contemporary racial and structural inequalities are those who are most likely to be exposed to and die of the coronavirus or COVID-19. I think that the, the problem that you're pointing to is a critique just of the abuses of a system as opposed yes. to um, the system itself is, is very powerful. Although even when we just critique the abuses, we're still missing many deaths that happen. I read a statistic that 12 South Asians die a day on average in the Gulf. That was a um, number an Indian sociologist had. There's a lot of normalized violence or precarious um, working and living conditions that perhaps are excused by international wealth differentials, you know, and the fact that, as you said, there's no better option for them in India. And and as like the men with whom I work really want to work in the Gulf, they um, are afraid that if they lose their jobs in the Gulf right now, they won't be able to feed their families and they will starve to death. So, I mean, this is a very real situation. It seems to me is that it really sheds light on and shows us some of the most critical problems with having these increasingly large wealth disparities in which very few have almost everything and people are increasingly becoming poorer and having less access in their basic rights or an ability to agitate for their either better rights or not to be killed by the police in the United States. I think this is a, a global problem. I think there are specificities to how it plays out in the Gulf, particularly around the numbers of workers. But I really do see this as a larger structural issue with how capitalism has shaped these inequalities and really relies upon things like racism to reinforce and normalize those abuses. Going back to the GCC, it seems the kind of social distancing that they're doing is not actually helping the workers. It is actually putting the workers at a greater risk of infection. Migrant workers have been essentially abandoned in some places. There have been a sharp rise in a number of workers with no money, food, who actually face eviction because they cannot pay rent. Um, Mm -hmm. And workers... Those are middle-class Indians, largely. Yeah. Those are not the poorest um, who are facing eviction um, for not being able to pay rent. I think that's right. I think there's a lack of access to medical care, either through not knowing or not being, being denied access to the systems. There's also a real impossibility of return. So you, one would need to be able to buy a plane ticket, which could be more than a family would make in a year. In addition, if one, like in India, an individual has to pay for their own 14-day quarantine with, that's um, run by the government and that the conditions are reportedly quite abysmal and much worse than what the labor camps conditions are. So these very precarious workers are really faced with almost no options. The crowded living conditions don't allow for them to socially distance and there's not really a place for them to go. That's why your article on Merit's website is titled No Good Options for Migrant Workers in Gulf, COVID-19 Lockdown. The monarchies in the Persian Gulf have responded to the rise in homelessness by arresting workers and sending them to detention centers. As you mentioned in your article on Merit, Qatar has imposed lockdown in its industrial areas, an area with high rates of COVID-19 infections. In fact, Amnesty International, as you mentioned, reports that Nepalese workers living there are being rounded up by the police, sent to detention centers, and then deported to Nepal. Mm -hmm. Last month, 
In Kuwait, Egyptian workers using furniture as weapons led a riot in a detention center. In many ways, that containment in an industrial area where there is a high infection rate or in other areas where labor camps are just so segregated and far from society, it is like in many ways a de facto de detention. And with these limited, workers don't have the ability to um, agitate for better working conditions and things like striking are immediate reasons that one would be imprisoned. There's no space for improvement. For those who are homeless and put in detention centers, my understanding is they're just even more crowded spaces that they're forced to wait in. What about these quote-unquote reforms that Qatar presumably did last year and, and working with international labor organizations? Has that improved the situation in terms of organizing for the labor in Qatar? And for... I have yet to see the impact do you think scapegoating the migrant workers helped the uh, political agenda of these regimes in the region and their ability to maintain rule over the local population in such tumultuous times? I, I definitely think that's the case. Nora Lori's worked on national security and how the government of the United Arab Emirates maintains its legitimacy through, in part, ensuring that the citizens or nationals are protected from migrants. And this is, includes not only like the physical dangers of migrants, but also ways in which migrants might um, disturb the values Emiratis want to maintain. So this is, so I think that certainly being able to protect the population from the coronavirus is another way in which the United Arab Emirates government or the governments of the Gulf states in general are able to reinforce their legitimacy through protecting their citizens. Given the fact that the GCC states do not provide meaningful assistance, Migrant workers generally depend on diaspora associations for relief. This has been going on for decades. Asian and African community groups have quietly provided food, accommodation, and tickets home for workers in distress. Now, even this line of uh, social protection is strangled by stay-at-home orders. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the importance you know, of this lifeline for the immigrant community, for the immigrant workers in the GCC states? Well, certainly. When I was in the Emirates after the uh, recession of 2008 and nine, again, there were many men who were living in these abandoned camps where their employers had never paid them and they had no access to food, water, or electricity. And often voluntary associations. So there was a group of um, South Asians, largely Pakistanis and Indians, who would deliver meals as well as toiletries to the men on a somewhat regular basis and then eventually held a fundraiser to pay for their ticket home. Eventually, their work largely became formalized and they began to like facilitate more and more plane tickets home for abandoned workers. And this is, you know, both Gulf states governments not protecting the, the migrants who are within their territories, but it's also the countries from where the migrants come are not helping either, even though many of these migrants have to get immigration permission before going to protect them from abuse. So there's a real privatization of these services for migrant workers to these voluntary associations or like, like diaspora groups. The problem is, is like in the current moment, when people aren't able to travel at all be into camps or really even leave their homes, there's no one to bring food to these people who are living in extraordinarily precarious positions. The workers from Africa or Asia who really don't have any other resources to rely on than the goodwill of diasporic associations. The migrant workers in Persian Gulf monarchies come from 
disadvantaged background. They're generally marginalized within their own communities in Asia or Africa. Many of them seem to come from rural areas, as you kind of mentioned in your article as well. Some are landless peasants and day laborers. Mm -hmm. A 2014 study by the ILO, International Labor Organization, concluded that worker-paid migration costs can be as high as a third of what low-skilled workers will earn in two or three years abroad in certain migration corridors. Essentially, the workers are trapped uh, as a result. The workers are trapped in this cycle of debt and end up in mm -hmm. forced labor. In GCC countries, the workers may pay as much as $10,000 of so-called recruitment fees for landing a job in GCC countries. Can you talk mm -hmm. about the background to the laborers and how difficult of a journey it is for them to make it to these countries? For Indians who are going to the Gulf, for the lowest paid positions, for people who are working as laborers, they're increasingly leaving from India's poorest states, um, states like Bihar or Uttar Pradesh. On average, workers pay a middleman, an agent, a fee of somewhere between 20,000 rupees, which is the legal amount that they can be charged, to 120,000 rupees. And I found most men pay a few thousand dollars. But this few thousand dollars for a man who makes two to three dollars a day working as a casual laborer, and that's not a consistent job, but just as a when someone will hire them type of pay is a amount that can only be paid through working in the Gulf. But because they borrow this money, often if they do have land, they put their, their family farm, which would be less than an acre in size, up as part of the collateral. They borrow these this money at a very high interest rate from money lenders, not from formal banks. And then they're really caught in a cycle of debt. So, you know, like in all cases, there's a lot of variation. Workers have told me that after working a couple of times in the Gulf, they're able to get somewhat out of debt. But that's assuming that every agent that they work with is a legitimate agent that's actually sending them legitimate jobs and not just taking their money and running away or giving them a visit visa instead of a work visa. So there's a lot of issues within the system that really do create this debt that workers have and often already have from their crops have failed because of the monsoon not coming or coming too long. And so they're already in large amounts of debt. And so it's just through, you know, compiling this debt, you get the creation of wage labor that then this migrant wage labor that's willing to go for quite what seems to us to small salaries, but as much more than they could make in their home countries. And recruitment of migrant workers has become a lucrative line of work in GCC countries. There are businesses registered in the Gulf with a minimum of 51% ownership by a citizen. They collect these recruitment fees up front. And if you figure a million or a couple of million, actually a few million uh, workers in a year paying as much as even $1,000 for quote-unquote recruitment, that's a few billion dollar industry or informal economy. And there's also fraud. Uh, there was a recent case of 800 workers stranded in Dubai during the pandemic because they had paid anywhere between three to $800 to land a job at a supermarket where the new owners of the supermarket are saying that they're not responsible because that was done by the previous owners. And basically, these people are stranded in Dubai. Yeah, and, yeah these stories are far from unique. I mean, this has been consistently a 
issue with this, the way recruitment works is the uh, a very high fees that are charged. And this, this system of recruitment is actually refabrication of the indentured labor system that was developed in the 1830s. Yes. Um, the British colonial government was worried that indentured labor was the same as slavery, so they began a recruitment system and an emigrant system in which they were supposed to ensure that workers had contracts and that they were being they understood the terms of their contracts. And similarly to in the present, workers would take on huge amounts of debt to emigrate and to navigate the system, and often would emigrate in times of like great famine and when they were already in large amounts of debt. So when the oil industry began to grow, the British colonial government in colonial India, which is today India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, refashioned the system used to move indentured laborers in order to move um, workers to the oil fields so that there could be large numbers of workers for these projects that often were to build a refinery, may take a few years, but they were short-term and low-wage. Let's talk more about the GCC states and the fact that they have asked the countries of origin to repatriate the migrant workers. But the workers, as you mentioned in your article, are trapped because some of the countries of origin, such as India and Pakistan, are not eager to see their citizens return during the pandemic. It has clearly become a complicated transnational problem, if you like. Even Mm -hmm. if there was no pandemic, repatriation of millions of workers can become a logistical nightmare. I know you have discussed this in detail in your article. Can you talk a bit more about that? Well, I think as of today, my understanding is that as of mid-May, 200,000 Indian nationals have registered to fly back to India and about 2,000 have. For a long period of time, Indians were unable to fly back to India because India refused to um, repatriate any workers during the lockdown. They finally began to accept some, but the workers are forced to, people who are repatriating, are forced to enter into a quarantine that is run by the government that have serious questions regarding the conditions in which they're being kept, including like everyone being forced into very small spaces, regardless of if you have symptoms or not symptoms, and inadequate food and water. But people are forced to go to these government quarantine sites and then also forced to pay for it. So this creates a barrier in as to who can access, who can even afford to go into this quarantine. In addition, one would have to register via cell phone, which I think creates another barrier as to who can even register to be repatriated. The picture is kind of unclear in terms of what seems to be the policy. And and part of the problem is there are six different states within this GCC Mm -hmm. pack. They have different policies in terms of Mm -hmm. repatriation. and, And also, clearly, based on what you have been telling us, they don't want to repatriate all the workers, migrant workers. Mm-hmm. They want to keep some of them there. If you can help us understand the picture a little more clearly, because on the one hand, we are talking about these lockdowns. On the other hand, we are trying to repatriate. Who is actually being repatriated in these countries? So my understanding is that the people who are being repatriated are, they're giving the governments of their home countries are giving people who are pregnant, People with severe underlying medical conditions and the elderly are being, they're being repatriated first is the goal. But the numbers that are going are just so small compared to the numbers that are, that actually want to return. We're talking 2,000 of 200,000 have been repatriated to India. So it's just who wanted to. It's just such a small number. And then I would assume that there's a barrier to access to even 
applying for repatriation for many of the people who work as laborers, especially those who work in camps that are outside of city centers. And because of these fees, one would have to pay for quarantine or plane tickets. I know Emirati government, and they do each state, each country does have its own goals, policies regarding the repatriation of workers. Each Gulf state has its own policies regarding the repatriation of workers. But the Emirates was offering to pay for the flights back of Indians as well as COVID-19 tests. And India at that time would still not take them because India was on a nationwide lockdown. And there was such upheaval with the migrant workers internal to India. So my impression is, is that most of the Gulf states would like for those who are unemployed to return home. Thousands of undocumented Ethiopian workers have been deported from UAE and Saudi Arabia back to Ethiopia. Ethiopia's health minister confirmed the mass deportation was undermining the nation's effort to reduce the rising number of COVID-19 cases in Ethiopia. Are these people who were actually working there as domestic workers mostly, and they were not documented? I know that there are many um, undocumented workers from both Africa as well as South Asia who um, work in all sectors and may even work as like day laborers at projects, like work for companies that hire out temp workers, basically, as manual laborers. So there are many undocumented workers. So let's say a family doesn't want their domestic worker any longer. They would actually say, well, leave. That would be considered somebody who's unemployed. Or right. Well, that would be during the time of coronavirus. But to actually for that unemployed person to actually be able to return to their home Mm -hmm. country would be largely dependent upon their home country. So many Ethiopians have been able to return. Many people from the Philippines have been able to return less people from India. Kuwait issued an amnesty for migrants who have overstayed their visas or are otherwise Mm -hmm. undocumented and they'll be allowed to leave the country without paying fines and will be allowed reentry in the future. Mm-hmm. The Kuwaiti government is paying for most repatriation flights via Kuwait Airways. But what about the public health of mass repatriation? For instance, there is no pre-departure testing of amnesty applicants at this point, mm-hmm. as far as we know. This whole thing is not very well planned, is it? No, it doesn't seem to be well planned anywhere. I feel like this really shows, highlights the huge cracks in our understandings of nation states and how we understand borders or the ability to keep those borders, you know, and what are the rights of citizens? Because it seems to me that for the worker, going home isn't necessarily going to keep them safe or feed them. Staying in crowded conditions means that they could very well contract the coronavirus or and they face that there's a lot of disproportionately high numbers. And so, and I think that what we're seeing is just that there's a system in place that's unable to deal with things like pandemics that really highlight the vulnerability of the poorest and the inability of states to protect those within their borders. Let's talk about UAE and India specifically, but UAE has made some threats Reports are that they made some threats that they would change the visa provisions for migrant workers from the countries that do not go along with its repatriation efforts. They were trying to force the Pakistani and Indian governments, for instance, to take their migrant workers back. Pakistan is dependent on financial assistance and investments from the GCC countries, specifically Saudis. India is massively dependent on oil imports. The oil import seems to have increased over the past couple of years because of the um, 
Washington's demand that India abide by the U.S. sanctions against Iran. So the Indian government is also looking for investments from the Gulf states, and we use them as potential source of contracts for India's industries. Talk about these threats by the UAE, and I don't know if Saudis were also doing the same thing. How serious were they, and, and what were the leverages? Well, it's interesting because earlier in the pandemic, so in April and um, May, the United Arab Emirates, as well as many regional government officials in India, very much wanted India to repatriate its workers. And both the UAE as well as the um, local government said we can't actually quarantine. We don't have the capacity to quarantine this many workers. But the India's prime minister said that it was not possible because of India's lockdown and attempts to get control of the coronavirus. How many people are we talking about here? Millions, definitely. So the UA, United Arab Emirates offers to pay for the flights and COVID testing, and the Indian government still refused. So the United Arab Emirates government announced that it would discontinue hiring Indians if the Indian government didn't begin repatriating Indian citizens. The Emirati government discontinued giving visas to Indians, it would be a huge financial blow to these poor communities that are very reliant on remittances from the Gulf. And I think it would be extremely unpopular in many sectors of India. Again, the Indians are the largest expatriate community in the Emirates. So I think it would be a challenging threat to carry out. But again, there's Ethiopians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Nepalese people who are all eager to work in Gulf states. I know Indians have the lowest set minimum wage of any of, at least the South Asia um, countries. Why um, is that? that? Well, each country gets to set the minimum wage for its labor, so that they can be hired at. And the Indian government has set the lowest. I've asked multiple times, but they just, I've been told that it's what they think is reasonable. Wow, this is amazing. So it's like wage dumping in a way. India compared to Pakistan or Sri Lanka or uh, Nepal and Bangladesh, Mm -hmm. they're the lowest. They actually set their own wages for their uh, expatriates or their workforce. Well, especially for these former British colonies where they have these immigration regulations, they're able to say that those who are fit within a vulnerable category, which for men is uh, haven't passed through 10th grade, and for any woman who's um, under 30, actually, and hasn't passed in 10th grade, is, who's Indian, is unable to emigrate for work to the Gulf states. If you're over 30 and haven't passed through 10th grade, you need permission from the Indian government to do so, if you're a woman. For those, they set the minimum wage, because the assumption would be that, um, to, to ensure that they're not being taken advantage of in their contracts. And that's the same for the other South Asian countries. And Indians have the lowest. And then they also, their the wages that they will take is lower than um, the wages that Filipinos will take. Presumably, the wages set by one of these countries of origin, let's say India, would it be the same for all these countries, for GCC countries? Or is it different? No, there's some variation. Uh Um, There's some variation. In the Emirates, it's slightly higher than it is in Saudi Arabia. So it has to do with the cost of living, perhaps. Well, I have some numbers on wages. I know in 2009, the minimum wage for Indian immigrants was between... 7,400 rupees to 12,450 rupees per month, which um, at the time was 156 U.S. dollars to 263 U.S. dollars per month. And the minimum wage for housemaids, which is the domestic workers, um, was 289 U.S. dollars per month. Have these wages gone up much since 2009? 
Yes, in 2014, the minimum wage in Saudi Arabia was increased to $320 per month, and I believe about $409 U.S. dollars per month in the United Arab Emirates. But they have stayed the same since 2014, right? That is my understanding. So it's not as if these people get some sort of cost of living adjustments even every two years, not to talk about annual cost of living adjustment or anything. Apart from the remittances coming from the uh, migrant workers, I mentioned the issue of uh, petroleum, oil uh, import. How else is the Indian economy connected or linked to the uh, GCC countries? So there's remittances, there's oil imports, there's also the export of Indian goods. The GCC is the biggest importer of Indian mangoes, for example, but also uh, fabrics and textiles and other durable goods. Is there an import of capital into uh, India by this GCC? I mean, some sort of investment in in form of investments? Saudi Arabia is doing any sort of investment? Well, I mean, so Saudi Arabia um, has certainly invested in... um, madrasas, religious schools, and community initiatives in parts of India. It looks like UAE, they were flexing the muscles. It worked. It seems like India is is going to take its expatriates back. I don't know exactly how it actually unfolded, but it seems like it, right? India is in the process of bringing home some of its citizens. Well, um, it's happening slowly, and it's it seems to be happening in fits and starts. I'm not sure how logistically you move millions of people and then quarantine them. But then there's, so there's this logistical issue as well as the policy seems to be somewhat fluid in how Mm. many people India will take. It changes. Andrea Wright is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and the program in Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at William & Mary using archival and ethnographic research methods in India, the Gulf, and the United Kingdom, her current projects explore migration from India to the oil fields of the Arabic-speaking Gulf and the connections between energy, governance, and labor. You can read her piece, No Good Options for Migrant Workers in Gulf COVID-19 Lockdown, on Middle East Report and Information Project website at merib.org, where you can also read more on the COVID-19 pandemic in the Middle East and North Africa region. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.